Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth wherever you get your podcasts. Please go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information. Our sponsor is CFS Financial. You can find a tab on johnwarrenmedia.com describing our work. We're a full-service financial consulting firm that works with both for-profit, non-profit corporations on debt reconciliation, debt restructuring, and financing new projects. Our primary work is in matters of strategic planning and debt negotiation for commercial projects. Please go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information. Today, we're going to continue merrily along in our discussion of the U.S. Constitution. We talked last time about the three branches of government, legislative addressed in Article 1, executive branch addressed in Article 2, and judiciary, or the judicial branch, is addressed in Article 3. We talked about the fact that you can read this document for yourself. You can read and understand this beautiful 4,400-word document, and you can understand it for yourself. We wrapped up with a discussion of a couple of uh, provisions that maybe aren't so well known or concepts maybe that you might not have thought of before. And I omitted a couple that I want to, I want to talk about just briefly, and then we're going to move merrily forward through the remaining articles. And we're going to jump into a discussion of the amendments to the constitution. There are 27 of them and they too are beautiful and protective. Now, in our world today, you're going to hear a butchering of sorts of this beautiful document, and we're going to focus on what it actually says and how it should actually be applied, how it was written, what it was intended to say. Uh, one good example, I think, is even in the preamble, this, this notion of, of these, these blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. They had us in mind. There's a reference to the general welfare, and we'll talk more about what that, what that actually means and doesn't mean. The meaning of words is important. So one of the things we failed, I failed to mention last time, a couple of concepts that are, that are kind of cool, and we're not going to have time to develop them thoroughly, but I want to mention them. There's a in section nine of article one, there are some provisions that just indicate to me the wisdom of the people who wrote this document. They were forward looking in a sense. And one of those provisions is the privilege. It says the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. This writ of habeas corpus is a wonderful thing. You probably studied it in high school and maybe don't remember it. Literally literally means produce the body or show me the body. 
And what this writ, what this writ of habeas corpus actually does for us is it, it says that this, this doctrine that can't be suspended is that we must appear before a judge. We must be charged by a judge within a very short period of time of being arrested. So we can't be held prisoner or in a, in a jail or a prison by the police or some other authority without being charged for a crime, an actual crime. We must know what that crime is, and there are some other stipulations, and there's some court cases that we'll talk about down the road that are really interesting that inform us on exactly what must happen. But this writ cannot be suspended in the normal course of things. And that is just a wonderful promise in this Constitution, a wonderful pledge that says that we are protected, that we can't be held just to be held, just to get us out of the public eye because of something we may have said or done politically or, or some other reason. Then there's a, the next sentence says, no bill of attainder or ex post facto law shall be passed. Now, this is, this is really a neat section as well. It's just, it's just a sentence. It's a one-sentence paragraph. No bill of attainder. And in short, what that means is that Congress can't pass a law that adjudicates guilt and or punishes U.S. citizens, U.S. residents, without involving the courts, without involving the judiciary. So Congress can't imprison political opponents or decide that a thing is illegal and has a punishment and causes people to either have to do hard labor or go to prison without going through the courts. There's no bypassing Article 3. There's no bypassing the judiciary. That's a beautiful provision. And then no ex post facto law shall be passed. That's a law that is applied after the fact. So there's no law that can be passed that would make an action that someone took six months ago illegal that would have otherwise not been illegal before the passing of the law. And the other place that this surfaces is in tax code changes. Those tax changes can't be applied retroactively because of this and other provisions. No after-the-fact law, no ex-post-facto law shall be passed. I wanted to mention just just those couple of things. And then I'm going to just summarize for you Article 4. We talked about it briefly, this notion of the full faith and credit that shall be given to each state by the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings of every other state. This There's a sense of, and think about the 13 original states and, and how earth-shattering this would have been, but there's this this sense of commonality. Federalism has in it this rule book explained in Article 4, and it's a very brief article, just a few paragraphs, three, four sections, and it specifies the way the states interface. And and it, it concludes, one can conclude from reading this section that, for example, things like if you're married in one state, you're married in all the states. If you have a driver's license and if you have a driver's license in one state, you can drive in all the states as, as a guest and so on. Talks about the jurisdiction of each state and what happens to criminals who flee from you know, basically describing extradition and, and the like. Then we get to Article 5, and this is 
really, to me, one of the most beautiful sections of the U.S. Constitution because it talks about the the way the document is to be amended. It talks about all of the ways, and, and there there are several paths to to amending the Constitution, and I'm going to describe them very simply just the way this article does. It says that two-thirds of the several states shall call a convention for proposing amendments. So, so we, we have that. That can happen. Or two-thirds of both houses of Congress shall, shall deem it necessary and shall propose amendments. So either two-thirds of the states or two-thirds of the Congress can call for an amendment. But get this. And then the states have to vote, and the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states, or by conventions in three-fourths thereof, as the one or other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress. So, so here it is, and this hasn't been amended. First, two-thirds of the Congress or two-thirds of the state must propose the amendment to the Constitution, and then three-fourths of the states must vote to ratify an amendment. In this bifurcated, divided world that we we live in, this partisan, this sense of partisanship and, and and kind of feels like everything is divided down the middle, conservative and liberal, it would be very challenging to amend the Constitution in this particular environment. Now, Article 6 is often overlooked. Article 7 is just the end of it. It's the it talks about the ratification of nine states being required, and it took a couple of years to get there. It took a total of almost three full years to get to all 13 states ratifying this beautiful 4,400-word document. But our, Article 6 talks about debts of the states that become the debt upon the ratification of this document, the U.S. Constitution. The debt of the states became the debt of the federal government. Now, that was a tool that the Federalists, led at least somewhat by Alexander Hamilton, used as a selling point to sell this great nation on this great document. And then there are a couple other references, the references to treaties and that kind of thing. And, and then there's a, there's a reference that, that is often misused, and that is, that, that is this. It says... No religious test, this is at the end of Article 6, shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. So that's, uh, as we said last time, that's just a reference that there can be no religious test. It doesn't, uh, to hold office, it doesn't say no religion in the country or no religion whatsoever in government, but no religious test can be required one way or the other, either must have or may not have test. So this beautiful document then concludes with Article 7 by a, just a quick summary of what is required for ratification. And then we go to the amendments. Now, I know many of you, perhaps every listener to this podcast knows what the First Amendment is. I'm going to read it to you, though. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Now, this is the only other place in the entire Constitution and all 27 amendments 
where religion is mentioned. So it's mentioned two times. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Wow. Now that is a mouthful. There are five basic freedoms laid out here. Think about this. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and the freedom to petition the government. Now, I don't know about you, but I get the sense just in my daily life, just kind of plowing away, doing all the things that I do, I get the sense that I hear from the government more often than they hear from me. I don't see this First Amendment, in my life at least, practiced in terms of my, my ability to, to talk to the government, to petition the government. I do assemble sometimes with some people. I, I, I do often at church. I don't really go to political rallies, though, and I don't, I don't know that I've ever been to a protest. But I do appreciate the First Amendment, the freedom of the press, the freedom of speech, and the freedom of religion. Now, this freedom of religion is interesting. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So we are not ever in this country, as long as this amendment is in place, going to have a state religion, a national religion. And, and it also says, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So we are entitled to exercise our religion freely. Now, Christians, this presents an interesting challenge for us because this means that atheists can practice their non-religion religion. This means that Muslims can practice their religion. This means that cults, as long as they don't break other laws, can practice their twisted sense of religion. This freedom isn't just for Christians. You see, Thomas Jefferson, interesting character. You probably know all about him. I find him fascinating because what a writer he was, what a thinker he was. But he had some challenges. He was a deist. He believed in God. He would have said he believed in a supreme being, but he took a razor blade uh, famously and, and, and removed the miracles from the New Testament. He didn't believe in the God of Scripture. He believed in a higher power, a supreme being, but he didn't believe in a God that was transcendent and has omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, and is omnibenevolent. He didn't believe in the God of the Bible. So this establishment of religion, this fact that Congress shall make no law, this prohibition from establishing a national religion is addressed in the First Amendment, and then the free exercise of religion is also addressed. Now, there are limitations, and I have students every year who try to kind of trip me up on, on this. You know, are there, are there no limitations whatsoever? Well, of course there are. There are other laws on the books. There are other amendments. There are other sections of the Constitution. 
and they all sort of work together. And so, so yes, we have these freedoms, but these freedoms aren't without limits. We may not break other laws in the practicing of our religion. Similarly, with the freedom of speech, you know, we, we aren't able to do threatening speech or otherwise break laws, but, but we have freedom of speech. We can, we can say what we want. What's really interesting is the, the Congress, and I skipped over this when we were talking about Article 1, they, they get immunity from all kinds of things. Now, now this, this is fascinating to me, and you probably knew this, but they can actually lie when Congress is in session and they do a speech in the, in the chambers of Congress. They are immune from prosecution and they can misrepresent facts all day long, and they do. They also get some immunity from arrest and prosecution when traveling to and from the Capitol to transact business. And you've heard about congressmen using that excuse to get out of traffic violations and DUIs and and the like. And yes, it's true. But for the rest of us, our freedom of speech cannot be abridged. What a beautiful thing. Then, then there's freedom of the press or of the press. The only reference to the, to the press here. Now, these guys really had foresight. We want a free press. The free press is our friend. Now, you've heard this expression, fake news, in recent years. And that we all find that troubling. It's hard now with electronic information bombarding us, coming at us quickly. We have to learn sources we can trust and sources we don't trust. And we have everything from far, far left sources to alt-right sources that can't be trusted, that have skewed or biased opinions and sometimes outright lies to prove a point or promote an agenda. But we still love freedom of the press. We want a free press. We want the press to have access to government. We want the press to be able to print and to say whatever it wants to print and say. We like to have an accurate press. We have some other laws that kind of hang on this amendment that prescribe some rules that give the press some immunity. And we'll talk about those another time. Then there's this little phrase, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble. You know, it's ugly sometimes in this country. I don't like watching monuments come down. Now, I'm a white guy. <laughs> and I understand that, that I need to be sensitive to other people with different backgrounds. I understand that statues and monuments can be offensive. I understand that crimes have occurred. Crimes against people groups have occurred in this country. I'm even aware, as I told you last time, that the men who signed this constitution, who crafted it and signed it, were all white and most were landowners. And many were slave owners. George Washington owned over 400 of them, I believe. So I'm aware of those sensitivities, but I frankly cringe when our history is just ripped apart. 
I don't think we endorse those people. I think the American people have the sense to know that certain monuments are memorializing parts of our history that was ugly. I also cringe when I see Antifa and other groups that are marching and breaking the law. That's not what this amendment gives us the right to do. We're, we're a nation of laws. That's an old governmental principle going way back to the Magna Carta that, and beyond that, that made its way into our laws. A nation of laws means, being a nation of laws, not of men, is, is how it was said back then, means, means that all government officials are subject to the law. The law doesn't change when we have another presidential election although some presidents sometimes give you that impression. No, we're a nation of laws, not of men. The law is superior to the person. So this right to assemble is a right to peaceably assemble. That means we can't destroy property. We can't break other laws. But we have this right to assemble. We don't have the right to disturb the peace. We can't We shouldn't be able to assemble in front of somebody's house and shout at them with bullhorns just because we don't like their opinion on something or we don't like their political party. But we do have the right to assemble. And Malcolm Gladwell points out in in his book, I believe it's called David and Goliath. I'm not certain of that. But he points out that now this assembly happens a variety of ways. It It can happen electronically. We can have a mob that assembles via social media. I know I probably sound like a dinosaur when I say that. Younger people are saying, well, of course, that's how we do it all the time. But there's nothing like the efficacy of of pictures, whether in social media or in print media, of a mob, a big crowd protesting something. All of this kind of works together in the First Amendment, doesn't it? Because we have a free press to cover the protest. And if we don't like something that goes on in government, sure, we have, we have elections every two years for the House, every two years for a third of the Senate, and every four years for the presidency, and so on. But we also have the ability to petition the government for a redress of grievances. You can petition your government without negative repercussions. So this amendment, most constitutional scholars would say, is probably one of the most important amendments. It gets a lot of airtime. And then we move on to the Second Amendment, and this, this one gets a lot of airtime as well. It gives the right to bear arms and to keep a militia. Here's what it says. Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia, and then there's a comma there. These commas are the source of all kinds of controversy, but being necessary to the security of a free state, and another comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, and another comma, shall not be infringed. Now, most constitutional scholars, and some will disagree, and I'll probably hear from some as a result of my saying this, Most scholars agree that with the five to four court decision that Scalia wrote a few years ago when he wrote the opinion for the majority and they said that, yes, the Second Amendment gives American citizens the right to own loaded 
firearms if they wish to in their homes. Now, there has been debate about whether this means just for the militia because of the placement of these commas. It's a grammatically confusing sentence. Some people would say, I believe this Constitution was written very clearly and very plainly, and I believe we have this right, and I believe this right is designed to hold the government in check. You remember last time we talked about the fact that there were people in the room who feared mob rule, the mob rule associated with too much democracy. But everybody in that room, when the Constitution was written, feared tyranny because of King George III at the other end of this spectrum. So, so this balance, this balancing act, this republic that we have with democratic elections is designed to protect us from both. And one of these protections is found in this Second Amendment, this right to bear arms. It's interesting that Scalia's opinion said, among other things, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast out on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws providing the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. So this decision, although it had those qualifications, was largely seen as a major win for those who believe the amendment refers to individuals' rights to bear arms. I think it is clear. Now, this next one is the often ignored but incredibly important amendment. There are a series of amendments here that protect us in ways that are very important. And it starts with this Third Amendment. This Third Amendment is actually about private property rights. Now, I have a concealed carry permit from the state of Florida. And I went to, at the time, there was a Gander Mountain nearby, and they had a a range. And I went to a day of training rolling my eyes, thinking that I wasn't going to learn anything during that day of training. And I was blessed by an instructor who is a retired Seminole County Sheriff's deputy who understood the law and gave us all kinds of extra information. He went above and beyond throughout the day to explain certain things to us. You know, Florida You may have heard, regardless of where you live in these United States or throughout the world, you probably know that Florida has a stand-your-ground law. And I really didn't understand what that meant. I didn't know, for example, one of the things I learned was that, that my car and my home are similar under the law with respect to my ability to defend my property with a gun. I also learned that day that even with a stand-your-ground law in place, that I can't go seek the confrontation The confrontation just because the individual happened to have broken into my home. I can't chase the individual, for example. And there were all sorts of other things that I learned. But this beautiful Third Amendment is one of a series of amendments that really separates, I believe, the United States from other nations. And you could say that of the whole beautiful 4,400-word 
Constitution. But here's here's what it says. Let me just read it to you. It's it's very simple. No soldier shall, in time of peace, be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Now, this sounds very simple, and your reaction is probably, well, duh, why would, why would they be able to? Well, they had been. The British troops and others, but particularly let's talk about the British, were an occupying force in these United States, and they occupied houses, farms, destroyed crops. They were intimidating forces. Now, this varied from parts of the country, from state to state, if you will, and it, and it varied even from town to town, and, and, and sometimes it, it varied from military commander to military commander, but some of them were very harsh and disregarded private property rights. So the government can't take over the occupancy of your property because of this beautiful Third Amendment. No soldier, no member of the military shall in time of peace be quartered or housed in any house without the consent of the owner nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. This provision and others should make us squeamish any time we have a National Guard or military occupancy or activity of any kind in this country. I'm not suggesting that all of those things are bad. I'm not suggesting that some of them aren't from time to time necessary. But we should be very cautious because of this beautiful amendment and others about military occupation for domestic purposes. The Third Amendment prohibits the government from forcing citizens to give lodging to soldiers in their homes without permission, of course. So before the war, the Revolutionary War, Americans were required to give food and lodging to British soldiers as part of the 1765 Quartering Act. So this is an important amendment. Now, the Fourth Amendment follows, obviously, this Third Amendment, this amendment that prohibits the quartering of troops. And here's what it says. The right of the people to be secure in their possessions, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or things to be seized. The Fourth Amendment prevents the government or police from searching or seizing the homes, belonging, or bodies of citizens without probable cause or warrant. Now, my students are smart, and they are savvy, and it's really interesting. I, I often ask them this question when we discuss the Fourth Amendment. I say something like, so you're pulled over by a police officer, and because of your youth or the length of your hair or the speed you were going or the type of car you drive, or for some reason, some abstract reason, some reason that isn't connected with the commission of a crime per se, the police officer says, may I search your vehicle? Do you give them permission. 
And although I certainly respect all of the families of all of the students, and I defer to them for instruction on this and all other matters, I counsel students to say no because of the Fourth Amendment. I don't have anything to hide, but the Fourth Amendment protects me. Do you have probable cause or a search warrant? And the reason I say that is because I might get that one in a hundred thousand police officer who's having a bad life and wants to frame me with some evidence of some kind that has something to do with commission of a crime. And because it's just me and him on the side of the road, I'm going to say no to that voluntary search. Now, I have to admit, during my adult life, this happened to me once when I was much younger, and I crumbled and said yes. And the officer was very courteous, and he searched my car very quickly, and he let me go on my way. So, yes, I'm a hypocrite, but my advice would be, no, the Fourth Amendment protects us from search and seizure. Now, you can think of examples that have been well-publicized where this particular right may or may not have been violated. We have, we have courts. Now we have the FISA court, which is beyond our scope here in this discussion. But we have them for a reason. We have search warrants for a reason. And this notion of probable cause is one that we should all celebrate. We get some protection from government intrusion into our person's houses, papers, and so on. All right, so we've got the Fifth Amendment next. This is a good one as well. This continues this private property sort of protection that we all have. It says, No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in active service in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be put twice in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Now, what what a mouthful this one is. We We know this amendment because of the I take the fifth plea that often happens in a publicized trial or even a, a hearing before a congressional committee. So we don't we know we don't have to testify against ourselves. I, I don't know about you, but I when I hear that, I take the fifth, I'm immediately thinking guilty. Well, not always the case. This amendment affords us some protection. And sometimes it behooves us not to testify on a matter. There are reasons that a Christian could take the Fifth Amendment in good conscience. But what I want to talk about today is this ending section that says that you can't be compelled to be a witness against yourself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The government cannot take property without due process. And it says, nor shall private property be taken for public use 
without just compensation. The sticky wicket here, taking a private property, is this notion of condemnation, this taking property that the government does for roads, to build roads or right-of-ways or to expand a road. You, you may know someone who's had this or this could have happened to you where they're going to widen a main road near your home and they, they offer to, to compensate you for a strip of land two feet wide in some cases or much larger in other cases. I know of several cases recently in the Orlando, the Central Florida area, where this has occurred to accommodate the building of a road. There are these outlandish cases involving the Fifth Amendment where government has taken property with some sort of intended purpose, say a downtown building, and ended up not following through on the intended purpose and then selling the property later to some other private owner. So this amendment certainly doesn't contemplate that sort of thing or, or, or other misuse. There are some protections that you have as a citizen where you can, you can resist this, this taking of property even though you get just compensation. There are people who've, who've lost multi-generational homes to condemnation rather frivolously in some cases. And so this document, this beautiful constitution gives you and me protection from the government simply taking property. I cringe as, as although I'm a capitalist and I, I am a federalist and I believe in these United States of America and I like this beautiful 4,400 word constitution and all of our freedoms. I salute and honor and respect our military, but I cringe when the government takes property frivolously, when they take it unnecessarily, they take it because they want that off ramp to move over a couple of feet. They, they often work with, and I have a friend who, who is in this business and, and they, they try very hard to be fair and to be just, and the courts are there to protect us and to enforce this beautiful fifth amendment. But still it is troubling when government takes private property and they shouldn't do so frivolously. So that's the fifth amendment and we'll stop there for today, but I want to close with, with a thought again, and these themes just run through this podcast. As I, as I look back, you know, we've, we've done more than I think 17, 18 episodes now. And I look at, at biblical themes, themes in the stories of the people who've been guests and, and uh, themes that we've talked about even in our discussion over the last couple of weeks on the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution is a, is a limiting document designed to limit government, preserve individual rights, and Scripture is a story, pre- presents God's revelation to us, and it's a story that has as a central theme the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want to miss this opportunity, even at the end of this discussion of the Constitution, to remind us of this beautiful gospel that Christ 
Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, was crucified on a cruel Roman cross, was buried, was raised on the third day, was seen by many, including the apostles, ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And you say, well, that all sounds great, but what does that mean to me? This justification, Paul says, in Romans in particular, and if you'd like the reference, look at chapter 3 in particular, although read read chapters 1 through 12 of Romans and you'll get the whole big picture of the beauty of this gospel, this justification by faith. What Paul describes in chapter 3 is our turning from self-reliance, the self-reliance he talked about in chapters 1 and 2, and turning and putting our trust in Jesus Christ, our propitiation, the propitiation for our sin. He conquered on that cross sin and death, met God's righteous demands for us, and we access this by faith alone. What a beautiful promise. As we get in the weeds and we talk about the Constitution, I think about the press, and I talk about some things that are kind of sad and make you make you think, well, wow, it's, wish, it, wish it was the way these guys intended when they wrote this, because it sure seems that they had something a little different in mind from time to time as we look at where we are, where our government is today. And I believe that to be the case, and we're not going to shy away at Relentless Truth from talking about those difficult issues. But think about, Christian, think about the beauty of this gospel. If you don't know what that means, if this is a new concept to you and you'd like to talk about it, go to my website, johnwarrenmedia.com, and send a contact form, and I'd be happy to speak with you personally. So that's Relentless Truth for today. We've addressed a number of the amendments and all of the body of the U.S. Constitution. Next time, we'll talk about some more of the amendments and some practical application. I hope you're enjoying these discussions on this beautiful 4,400-word document. I'm going to next time talk about some constitutional trivia. I'm going to arm you with some things that will allow you to impress your family. I'll give you one example I'm going to answer the question, what is U.S. Constitution Day? Not not when was our country formed and so on, but what is U.S. Constitution Day? That, day? that day is September 17th, and I'm going to explain why. So thank you for your support. This podcast has been a labor of love, and the plan is for that to continue to occur indefinitely. We're going to talk about current news stories from time to time. We're going to segue into the economy from time to time and try to give all of us a better understanding of what is going on. This is a unique economy, a unique time for our country. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us again wherever you get your podcasts or you can go to johnwarnmedia.com for more information. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. 
That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.